Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I am your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Steve Edwards. Hello from Portland. Raymond Camden. Hi, everybody. And our special guest today is Oscar Spencer. Welcome, Oscar. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you here. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Would you mind introducing who you are so that our listeners have some idea of how awesome you are? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a software engineer, uh, and I work at a company called Tidelift. Uh, yeah, I, I got into computing a long time ago now. Back when I was a kid, my dad uh, had these computers in his office and I would just sit around and take them apart and put them back together. And it was an absolute blast. And I felt really confident in how computers work until one day I was playing a game on a computer and I realized, huh, how come I can click stuff and things happen on the computer? I have no idea. And so I went to my local library. I picked up Java for dummies and that's where it all started. And yeah, it was it was history ever since. And you know, now I'm a software engineer. It's pretty cool. And I, I got into Vue when I, I joined Tidelift because uh, we use Vue extensively for our application. And it's been awesome. I was a React developer before that. I um, still love React, still awesome, but really been enjoying using you for the past couple of years here. It's okay. We won't hold uh, React against you or anything. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, did you did you ever touch on to like video games or anything since that was one of your initial interests? I mean, I, I did a couple of things maybe when I was in college, just a few fun projects here and there. But I never really got deep into it. And maybe one day I'll actually end up doing something kind of fun there. But I never really got super into it. But there's there's so many awesome frameworks and things now that would be really exciting to use. Yeah. What drew you into web development in particular? I think for me, web development, the thing that I love about it is how visual it is. I like that I can deliver something where it's like you can see it, you can interact with it, uh, you can have a lot of fun. Um, because like I, I do enjoy like the very, you know, technical parts of like doing back end. Like it's fun thinking about databases and thinking about how these tables relate to each other and things like that. But really the the beauty of of the the front end is that hey I'm making something visual. The user's going to interact with it. I can think through these user interactions. It's sort of like you know you get to put on your product uh, manager hat a little bit sometimes and and think through how people are going to use these things and get really excited by it. And I, I guess that's really just a lot of it. I just love seeing someone use something. Like one of my favorite things is to watch over the user testing videos and see how people are breaking the app after you know release some feature or something. But yeah, I mean, it's just really exciting to, to see someone actually use the direct code that you've just written. It's really cool to me. That's awesome. And you said you were a React developer and you switched to Vue with your job. How was that transition, um, learning Vue? Yeah. So what was really neat was one of the really senior engineers at Tidelift. I remember <laughs> it was my first week at Tidelift and he sat me down. He's like, all right, I was also a React developer before I did Vue. And so here's everything that you need to know to switch over. And he just went through absolutely everything, like going through like, hey, we don't write render functions. We write templates, which was funny because when he said that, I was like, writing templates, what year is it? <laughs> um, but uh, I was like, okay, sure. Um, you know, you know, so like doing that, you know, going over all of the, the different like testing libraries and whatnot, you know, sort of doing all those mappings. Um, and so it was actually pretty 
pretty quick for me to sort of make that switch. There were like some things that I could do in Vue that, you know, were big no-nos in, in React, like maybe having two-way binding between like two components. And so I was like, whoa, what's going on here? And I was like, oh, wait, Oscar, calm down. That's perfectly okay. It's like, it's only two, it's only one level. It's fine. <laughs> like, we're not doing anything crazy. Uh, let's all calm down. Uh, and it's convenient and nice and easy, and it makes sense. Um, and I, I think the, the huge thing for me that sort of made Vue shine was I loved how no one has to really worry about optimization, right? Like, you're not thinking through the life cycle of a component. I'm not worried about, oh, hey, when the render function of this component runs, uh, oh, no, let me not define a function here because it makes a closure and that's going to invoke JavaScript's GC too much and then my component's going to be slow. Like, I, I like not having to worry about that. Like, that's not something I think I should ever be worried about. And I think that was like the huge thing that made you click for me is like realizing, oh yeah, you just, you, you write your templates, you fix up your data, you're good to go. Um, and it's been pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure working with it. Uh, and it, it's so easy to onboard new people onto Vue. And, and the other thing too is, is having your designers able to come in and they're like, oh yeah, we know HTML and they want to mess up uh, your markup or whatever. Um, they can get in there and do that. And it, it's not going to be a huge deal. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, the, the transition was, was pretty seamless. Um, and like, I got to do some React recently on uh, uh, some side projects. And like, I was like, yeah, like, I, I get it. <laughs> like, it's fun, I suppose. But like, it, there still is a bit more thinking that you have to do when you're working on your projects. But that's okay, too. Is there anything you miss uh, from working with React that you wish was in Vue? I wish we wrote render functions a bit more in Vue. I know that they're not really necessary. and I've maybe written two render functions at work, like ever. Um, and were they really necessary? Maybe not. Like one of them is a view component that <laughs> you can uh, give it a bunch of children and it'll render them all with an Oxford comma. <laughs> and like, uh, you know, that's not really a necessary <laughs> component to write, uh, but it was much easier to write as a render function than uh, with a template. And so I guess I missed that a bit. Um, and I, in fact, I was, uh, I was chatting with one of my teammates recently and he was saying like, hey, I saw that you can use JSX with view render functions. And I was like, yeah, you totally can. <laughs> I don't know that we should. It might encourage uh, people writing way too many render functions for things. Um, but I mean, I, I suppose I do writing render functions sometimes because like sometimes you, you just want to write some JavaScript, you know? Um, but like, other than that, I, I like how, how Vue just keeps me really sane. Uh, it really just separates like, hey, this is your template. This is your business logic. Move on with your day. And just you're, you're not worried about mixing bugs between those two things, which I, I, I think is, is good. Nice. And I think for those who may have heard your name before, we know that you've, you definitely have embraced Vue to at least some extent. Uh, like you're saying, you like, it, you like using it. You also appeared at ViewConf US earlier in the year. Prior, prior to everything shutting down from COVID. And you gave a, a talk about using Vue as a backend. And that's that was a really good video. Um, I, I enjoyed some of the concepts you were presenting there. And that ties into our, our topic of discussion today of reactivity in Vue. Um, do you mind talking a little bit about what you, what you talked about in uh, ViewConf and so we can dive into our topic from there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to come up with uh, something good to propose for, for ViewComp. And one of the things that I really liked about Vue 2.6 was the new standalone reactivity API. I realized like, hey, 
um, I don't actually have to use this to do fun and stuff. You can actually take this and do all sorts of random degenerate things that you maybe should not do using this standalone reactivity module. And so I thought to myself, what is the most wild thing that I could do? And the most wild thing that I could come up with was, hey, let's implement a database <laughs> using uh, the view reactivity module. And let's make it so whenever you mutate that database, whenever you add new records, change records, whatever, you trigger effects uh, and, and make different things happen. Um, and so that's how I came up with that talk. Um, and it's neat because, you know, it gives you an opportunity to go over how reactivity works in Vue, um, get everyone excited about it. Um, because a lot of times we don't think about like some of the simple things like, yeah, sure, you have this variable that you update and whenever you update your variable, the component changes on the screen and that's cool. But there's actually a lot of really cool tech that goes into making that happen. Um, so it was really cool to you know break all of that down. And then um, the demo that I did in my talk, uh, I hooked up the database to an AWS Lambda function. So whenever you add records uh, to the database, it would trigger the AWS Lambda function that the fun Lambda function would send out tweets. Uh, so that way, whenever you got a new user, it would you know tweet and be like, "Hey, this person has like you know joined our community or whatever." And if you delete users, it would delete the tweets, uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's just uh, it, it's cool, and, and it shows like, hey, uh, you can actually use this for way more. You can build so many different kinds of applications. Uh, it's not just limited to your front end stuff. Um, but yeah, that, that's what my talk was. Cool. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, watching that. And I highly encourage it if anyone wants to see Vue on the back end yeeting tweets uh, across AWS Lambda. <laughs> awesome. So let's let's dive into it. Let's talk about Vue 3 reactivity. I only have a very basic understanding of how the, the reactivity system works. And I'm sure there are people listening who have either greater or lesser understanding. So let's let's just start from the basics. How does how does Vue track the reactivity that it needs to for rendering applications? Yeah. So basically, what Vue does is it it takes like so when you write a Vue component, uh, you've got your 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 data option that you provide to your component, and you you give it uh, just an, a plain object of whatever properties that you want your component to work with. And so what Vue does is it it iterates over all those properties and sets up watchers for all of those to check, hey, did you mutate this thing? Did you change this thing? Sort of anything that you do with it. And so that way, whenever you touch it, whenever you change it, you knows, hey, I need to re-render your component. And the neat thing about Vue 3 versus Vue 2 is that Vue implements this with ES6 proxies. Now, proxies in JavaScript are freaking awesome. Um, they allow you to intercept any action that happens on an object. So whether uh, like a function is called, you access a property, you change something, you delete something, you can trap, uh, you can, you can track all of it. It's, it's really, really neat. So one of the limitations that we had in Vue 2 was if you had an object and you added a property to it, Vue couldn't track that. Vue had no idea that you added this. Yeah, so the awesome thing about proxies in Vue 3 is that with proxies, you can track absolutely anything that happens to an object in JavaScript. So whether you're calling a function, whether you're accessing a property, whether you're setting a new value, you can track anything that goes on. And so this was one of the limitations with Vue 2. If you added a property to an object, this isn't something that Vue could track, unfortunately. However, 
you were able to actually get Vue to do it. If you've ever had to look up Vue.set, that's what that would do is you say, hey, Vue.set this property and that tells you, hey, I'm adding a new property to this thing. And now Vue can track it for you. That's not necessary in Vue 3. Because we have proxies, Vue knows, hey, when you add a new, a new property to an object, I see it. I know that it happened. I can re-render your component, which is super neat. Um, so that's like the huge difference between Vue 2 and Vue 3. That's also why <laughs> Vue 3, unfortunately, does not have all those amazing features available for Internet Explorer, unfortunately, because Internet Explorer does not support uh, ES6 proxies. Uh, but that's okay uh, for those of us that are, you know, have the, the fortune to not support Internet Explorer. We can move on and, and not have to worry about those things. But yeah, whenever you change one of the properties on your, your instance, you've got a watcher that's watching all of it. So it collects all these changes and then, boom, it, you, you make these changes and you re-render your component. And, and that's the whole concept of reactivity. It's just saying, hey, when you change stuff, <laughs> re-render. That's it. Now, one of the really cool examples of understanding what reactive style of programming is, is the spreadsheet example. So if you have a spreadsheet and you have two columns and you say the third column is the sum of the first two columns, you've just declared, hey, this is the sum of these two things. And whenever you update values in those two columns, the sum always updates in the third column. And so that's what makes it declarative. And that's the, the power of reactivity. You declare that, hey, this component should look like this when this data looks like this. And then whenever the data changes, it looks the way that you described and, and that's better than the imperative style of like, oh, hey, or, or maybe how you might write it in jQuery, right? You have to look at how the data is and when the data changes, you manually say, okay, go update this particular thing, right? So that's the concept of reactivity and, and how that works in Vue. Okay. And yeah, I, I definitely appreciate being able to set a computed property to, in, like in your example, return a list that just adds values from the other two lists instead of having to build my own trigger, essentially. and do that all by myself like we used to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I know one of the, the main reasons they did all of these changes was also to support the new composition API. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So with the new composition API, a lot of things that people were using mix and support before, you can now use the composition API for. However, the thing about creating a lot of these things, um, a lot of these properties that you want to use with the composition API, they're not reactive by default. So if you want them to be reactive, you do have to use the standalone reactivity API to make those things reactive. And so the notable changes from Vue uh, 2.6 to Vue 3 with the reactivity API, they renamed the main function that you use. It used to be called observable, but it got renamed to reactive. And that was because of RxJS. Uh, in RxJS, they have uh, observables and they just didn't want any confusion there. So they renamed it. Uh, so now you use the reactive function. So you can pass any object to the reactive function and Vue will just make it reactive and say, hey, I'm tracking this now for you and you're all set. And then they renamed, there's a function called effect, which was you, you just passed it an effect and now it's called watch effect. And so it just explicitly says, hey, Vue, watch this effect. And whenever the data changes, rerun this effect. And like, yeah, so it's, it's not a really huge changes. Like it is, they are breaking changes because they changed the names. But other than that, they do work exactly the same. And so the, the watch effect, that's, that pretty much maps to the watch properties that you would use in the options API. Is that correct? Just about. There is, they do have a function called watch uh, in the new standalone reactivity API. And so that function, you 
it does work exactly like the property on uh, your regular view component where you say, hey, I want you to watch these particular properties and then just run my effect. And then watch effect does not, watch effect is a little bit more magical. It does it automatically where view will run your function, realize that you're accessing certain properties or changing certain properties, and then it'll automatically rerun that function when it notices that any of its dependencies change. So like watch is a little bit more explicit versus watch effect says, hey, just kind of magically know when it happens and, and then just do it and move on. Okay. So so it's a little more like how a computed property would work, the, the watch effect. Yeah. Except exactly. it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't return is the the main difference. Right, exactly. Okay. And even cooler, uh, new in V3's uh, reactivity API, there's now a function called computed. And you can straight up create computed values. Uh, so you can have standalone computed values that exist outside of the realm of view, where it's like, hey, this value will just automatically update to whatever value it's supposed to be whenever any of its dependencies change, which is freaking awesome. It's it's really exciting to like see these things and just think through all the use cases. Like I wanted to build a, a chat client that was completely based on uh, view, you know, reactivity changes. Um, I feel like it's maybe a little bit far fetched, but it'd be a really fun exercise. It'd be really cool. A couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on DevChat.tv, and I got two overwhelming responses. One was from the JavaScript community; they wanted a React show. And the other one was from the Ruby community and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show though is React Roundup. And every week we bring in people from the React community and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps, and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. Yeah, and just to be clear, the, all of these things we're talking about, the reactive, computed, watch effect, that all works without you having to use Vue single file components, right? You can just yeah. do that outside of Vue as as your front-end framework. You could use it in React if you want. Or oh, you, you sure could, uh, which is like, uh, you know, they've got their whole reactivity module as well. But if they wanted to throw it out and use views, they totally could. Nothing's stopping them from doing that. But yeah, it, it's neat uh, because like I, I think my my demo I think just ran on Node.js and like it, it feels kind of weird to be like oh import this from view <laughs> like in a, in a Node.js app. But like yeah, it totally works. And because it is standalone, you don't have to import it from the actual view package. You can re- import it from at view slash reactivity, and you get everything there, uh, and and you can do whatever. So I, I really liked uh, how they separated it out because uh, it, it lets me do my degenerate things. <laughs> and then also, you know, opens up, you know, so many more doors for other folks to write some pretty neat stuff. That's awesome. What I, I'm Since you've been thinking about this a little more than I have, have you thought of any other uh, degenerate things that you could do? I, I know we've talked about using it at a backend, sticking it into React. Any other Any other fun ideas to... I don't know about degenerate. I thought of some maybe slightly more legitimate use cases for it. Um, I thought about um, like something that would be really straightforward and a legitimate way of using it is if maybe you had some animations or something like that that were based on what the local weather was. Uh, what you could do is you could have a stream of weather data coming in and it could be mutating some 
a global store or something saying like, oh, this is the current state of the weather. And then you just have effects that automatically trigger things in your animations and stuff like that. And that's like a totally valid, legitimate thing that you could do. And I don't think people would get too upset looking at your code and seeing that you're doing that. Um, I, I've tried to keep the degenerate things to a minimum <laughs> but, and like been trying to think of legitimate ways of using it. Like obviously like, you know, just using it in view is, is a great way to use it as well. You don't have to, you know, use it standalone, but I think, yeah, doing things like animations, um, if you did want to build a chat client, it would totally work. So yeah, I mean, uh, things like that. Oh yeah, especially like a live scoreboard would be like a, a useful app that you could build where you can just use the the effects to update it. Because the, the power of it is the fact that you can just declare, hey, this scoreboard shows the current score. And then you don't have to worry about going in and updating. It's like, oh, we got a new score. So I'm going to write a function that will go update the score. You know, you don't have to do that. Uh, so it's just sort of a sort of different way of thinking about the problem. So you can probably apply it to almost anything, really. <laughs> That's awesome. Raymond or Steve, do you have any questions before we continue? Yeah, I'm still trying to get my head around some of these differences because the way you're describing it in three, it almost sounds like you two. So let's go back to you know your YouTube watcher versus watch effect. For instance, can you could you give me an example of how you use watch effect in three that either you couldn't do or that you would do differently in view two or you would be more difficult in view two? Yeah, so they didn't really change so watch effect uh, by itself did not really change from uh, view two dot six to view three. So it was so watch so it was called effect in view 2.6 and was renamed to watch effect in view three. And at that point, it's sort of exactly the same. It works the exact same way. The, the key difference is the fact that it uses proxies. So if you add, you know, if you add a new property to an object or you delete a property, uh, view is going to be able to track that for you without you having to use view.set. And, I, and that is actually pretty huge um, because that is something that I've noticed trips up a lot of people because they sort of expect, oh, everything else just sort of works the way I expect. And so it's sort of weird that you add a property and you can't track it for you. But typically you find it on Google pretty quick because you Google, oh, why can't you notice this thing? And people are like, oh, just use view.set and, and you're okay. Um, but in terms of like the, the standalone API, it, it is exactly the same. I do believe the watch function in 3.0, I, I do think that is new. I don't think that one existed in 2.6. Um, but it's just sort of like a standalone way where outside of your view component, you can just say, I want to watch these things and, and trigger some particular action, which, yeah, you couldn't do that in, in V2, but you can do that in V3. And that becomes more useful. Like if you, let's say you wanted to write your own UX, for example, um, and you didn't want to use the UX for whatever reason, having access to a function where you can say, I want to watch this property and mutate some data or go do an API or um, API call or something. You can do that now in V3 that you couldn't do in, in View 2. That's sort of the, the new stuff, at least. And so the fact that you can do it out, so you say you can do it outside of your component, but use it in your code. So it's like you write it in a separate file and import it into your component, or you can write it in your component and it's available outside or... Uh, yeah, both. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so <clears throat> the, the key part is that you can write it outside of a component um, and it doesn't have to have a context of a component at all. And so when you import it into your component, I, I think the, the good way to think about this is whenever you want to use a Vuex module, you have to use Vuex.mapgetters or Vuex.mapState. If you just create the reactive thing standalone, you can just stick those into your component without having to do any special or use any special function. You can just stick them in your component and they're going to be reactive. 
Um, and I think that's sort of the, the key difference where it now allows you to, like, if you don't want to use Vuex, you don't have to because you can just create a reactive store and then just import it into your component and, and you're good to go. You don't have to use any special functions. So that's sort of like the huge stuff is being able to do that. And, and then once again, with the composition API, being able to make, because uh, with the composition API, you'll be writing functions that aren't at all uh, defined within the context of uh, a component, right? And so in those cases, if you want to make them reactive, you have to use the standalone uh, reactivity API to make those things reactive so you can include them in other components or whatnot. Okay. So just to be clear, just to be clear on that um, reactivity um, package, is that a separate install that you would have to do as well, or does it just come as part of Vue? Yeah. So if you're using normal Vue, it's part of Vue. You can import like effect, or sorry, watch effect, watch, computed. Uh, you can import all of these things from the main view package just normally. And then if you want to use them without all of the, the DOM stuff that Vue gets you or any of the, com the, com the component stuff, you can import it from at Vue slash reactivity. Uh, and it's all there and ready to go. Pulling that up right now, just so I can reference it in our show notes, because that was, that was one piece that I was missing as we were talking. I thought it was all just coming in from the straight view library, but if you're not using view, then that's not particularly useful. <laughs> right. Um, and so I think it was a really smart decision by them to pull it out as a separate library. And, and they started that prep work at the end of Vue 2 and Vue 2.6, but I feel like they've really solidified it now in Vue 3. Awesome. Well, great. Are there any other points on reactivity that you'd like to go over, Oscar? I mean, I, that's sort of the gist of it. The The best way for folks to, to learn about it is to to play around uh, with the, the new reactivity uh, API. And you'll sort of see how the pieces all fit together, how functions are, are getting called. And, and definitely, I'll, I'll be able to give you a link to a, a GitHub repo with uh, some samples if people want to just play around with a demo of their own. And yeah, just play around with it and, and you'll learn a lot. Uh, and you can sort of even think about how you implement it yourself. Uh, and it'd be sort of neat there too. Nice. Thank you. Um, before we we continue too far, I'd I'd like to touch on a separate project of yours, if you don't mind. Um, I'm, I'm a little curious how this ties in, if if at all, to uh, your focus on reactivity and view. You, I believe, are a creator of a language. Is that yes, correct? Absolutely. So uh, I created a programming language with one of my friends uh, in April 2017. It's called Grain. And a lot of folks uh, ask, oh, why is it called Grain? Uh, and so I, I'm always obliged to answer that question. Uh, so for those of you who are familiar with the board game Settlers of Catan, you might be familiar with the, the resource uh, Grain. Some people call it Wheat. Its official name is Grain. Uh, but yeah, uh, there was a paper that someone put out a number of years ago <laughs> describing the value of each of the resources. And it turns out that grain has the highest value of any resource. And for those who are wondering, brick has the lowest value of any resource. Uh, so we just, uh, we were big fans of Catan, so we decided to, to name the language grain. Uh, but yeah, grain, it's a, it's a strongly typed functional programming language. But the idea behind the language is we want to allow folks to use these functional programming concepts, but not make them so intimidating. Uh, like a lot of other languages, it is very intimidating to see all these functional concepts and, and, and you know, a lot of these languages are just very tense about it. So we have, like, one of the things that we let you do in Grain is if you want to mutate a, a variable, you can, uh, you know, and that's not something that, you know, other functional languages let you do. And there's no technical reason why they can't. They just sort of don't want you to. 
uh, just because it's not the programming style. Um, but we're trying to bring a lot of uh, academic features that you get from you know, languages like Haskell and OCaml, but you know, put them in the hands of people. But the neat thing about Grain, the coolest part about Grain is that it compiles to WebAssembly. So uh, lots of folks have definitely heard of WebAssembly uh, at this point, but it's the new assembly language that's on the web. So as we all know, the only language you get to use on the web is JavaScript. You don't have a choice. And that makes a lot of folks really upset with the emergence of WebAssembly. Now other languages can uh, write compilers that compile to it. So you're starting to see we have compilers for C and C++. Um, many people have heard of Rust, uh, which also compiles to WebAssembly now, but those languages are all also very low level. Uh, and at the time, I didn't see any uh, any languages that uh, were new. I didn't see anyone making new languages for WebAssembly, so we set out for that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's really awesome. In terms of relating it back to uh, reactivity in Q, I, I'm not sure that there's much of any connections, um, but um, we, we are uh, trying to, you know, make it a very usable language for folks who are trying to do stuff on the front end. So. Not yet, but potentially in the near future, we'll have a, an actual front-end framework uh, for folks to use. Definitely will be inspired by a lot of the awesome things from Vue. and going to be inspired by a lot of the awesome things uh, from React as well. But yeah, I mean, it's been an absolute blast. Um, open source is really hard, especially working on a, a compiler is also really hard. Uh, so definitely always looking for, for folks to contribute to that. But yeah, definitely check out that project. That's just at grain-lang.org. Yeah, it's, it, it's neat. Reach out to me. Let me know what you think about it, uh, especially like if, if you love Vue and, and other fun and stuff, definitely check it out. You, you might like what you see. And, and I realize we are a Vue show, not a functional language show. My, but my, my primary introduction to strongly typed functional languages is like Elm, uh, which is also a front end language, but it compiles to JavaScript instead of WebAssembly. But it, it offers a lot of the, the same promise, I think, of you know, strongly typed, no runtime errors. Are, are you in any way inspired by the Elm project? I, oh. I see the I see the the structure of the language is very different. It's very much more in line with JavaScript or C sharp or something as far as the syntax. Oh yeah, Elm is definitely a huge inspiration. Um, Elm is a very very cool language. And in fact, the uh, the main like even though like if you throw away all the functional stuff from Elm, like the huge thing that you got of Elm is developer experience like the dude behind elm uh, literally did his phd on like how do you make a language that is developer friendly like with solid error messages and things like that um and so there are a lot of amazing things from from elm that we're definitely you know pulling inspiration from um yeah i the the elms is amazing in a lot of different ways i think we're we're tackling it a little bit differently uh because elm is very friendly and and yes, it does compile to JavaScript, which is a, a huge thing as well. But like Elm is still a very much so a very functional language. Um, and while we're trying to be functional, we're still trying to maybe appeal more to folks who don't want to go 100% down that, that route. Um, and, that, and that's sort of going to be the main difference that you're going to see between the two languages. But like one of the features I want to steal from Elm is in Elm, if you have a package or a library and you make changes to it, it automatically tells you the Simber upgrade for, for that package, which is absolutely incredible. I, I wish everything could do that. And you can you can really only do that when you have an amazing strong type checker, uh, which luckily we do. So we can we can implement that feature as well. But yeah, definitely a lot of inspiration from Elm. Awesome. And I've got your tie-in back to view reactivity. Will the will the grain DOM rendering engine be 
powered by the view reactivity uh, watch effect. <laughs> you know, there's a solid chance um, we're trying to keep as much of the language as we can in WebAssembly, so trying not to call out to JavaScript too much. Uh, but there's a solid chance, um, especially as we're you know, finishing up our JavaScript FFI, I wouldn't be shocked if someone wrote uh, bindings from grain into uh, views reactivity module. And it, it'd be really sweet, honestly, because views reactivity mo uh, module is stellar. And it gets you very close to being able to write a fully functioning front-end library. Uh, in fact, I imagine if you just took an afternoon and you started with the reactivity module, you could write a pretty solid front-end framework. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. That's awesome. Well, Oscar, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been great. Yeah, absolutely. Right. At this point, we will move into picks. Uh, picks are the part of the show where we share things that we like with the community. It doesn't have to be programming related. And today, I think we'll start with Raymond. Uh, do you have a pick for us today, Raymond? Yeah, and hopefully I haven't mentioned it before because time is a bit weird. But uh, my wife introduced me to Gotham, a uh, TV show about Batman or more about being you know, Batman as a young child. It's done, but it's on uh, Netflix and we've been kind of going through it. And it's been really enjoyable because it focuses a lot on Penguin and uh you know not joker <laughs> and anything that doesn't focus on joker and gives me a different perspective i i, I really enjoy so uh we are about 80 percent through not done yet so no spoilers please awesome steve do you have a pick for us today sure so i am a child of the 80s <laughs> and grew up and so a lot of that music and stuff i still listen to and so through the magic of social media somewhere. At some point, I think I came across this video that I really liked. It's uh, by, it's called a retro synthwave type band. In other words, one of those 80s type of bands that was a lot of synthesizer type music as compared to you know, your hard guitars and stuff called The Midnight. And so they, as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh my gosh, that's 80s music right there. They have a particular song called Sunset. And the the song itself isn't particularly noticeable, but there's a YouTube video that uses that song as a soundtrack that's all about clips from all the classic uh, 80s teen movies. So if you grew up watching a lot of those movies, you know, there's my all-time favorite, Better Off Dead, Real Genius, Weird Science, Back to School, you name it. Just all sons of clips, so all kinds of uh, interesting clips. So if you, if you watch it, you'll get a lot of flashbacks for sure. So uh, anyway, I'll I'll put the, the link to the video in the uh, in the show notes. But if you're a child of the 80s like me, you'll find it somewhat interesting. Awesome, thank you, Oscar. Do you have a pick for us? 
Absolutely. Uh, if you've got a Netflix subscription, I highly recommend The Queen's Gambit. It is a show on Netflix centering around an orphan named Beth Harmon, and she plays chess. But the the neat thing about the show is it, it tackles a bunch of different issues. Because obviously uh, she's an orphan, um, but it goes through things like just parts of society that are are dominated um, uh, by men and sort of you know challenging those things. Also challenging what substance abuse looks like. But it's an absolutely uh, amazing show. I I really enjoyed it. I'm also a, a chess fan. And with the pandemic and everything, there's been a huge boom in online chess. So probably there's going to be a lot more people who are a lot more interested in watching that movie now. But it's, it's a very, very cool movie. And actually, a uh, neat fact about the movie, all of the chess that's played in the movie uh, was hand-selected by uh, Gary Kasparov. Um, so it's actually real chess. If you actually watch the games, it's, it's pretty neat and, and it's actually really cool. Uh, so definitely check that out. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard a lot of recommendations for that show. Me too. You a fan of you know the one that reminds me of? Have you ever seen uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer? Oh no, I, st- I it's on my list. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good one about jo- kid named Josh Waitskin, I believe, who was a, a chess prodigy. Uh, that's a really good chess movie too. Even if you're not into chess, it's a good movie. So, as somebody who's interested in chess and can't convince anyone to play with me, where would I go online to to find these chess communities to play? Oh, definitely. I mean, the, the the major communities out there, there's three, I believe. And so the main ones are chess.com, I think, which is probably the most popular. I often play on chess.com, leechess.org, uh, which leechess is completely open source, which is pretty cool. So if, if you care about open source or if you play a few games and you want to give back to the community, you can go contribute to the, uh, their project. And then the, the third one that's pretty popular is chess24. And I believe it's chess24.com that people play on. But yeah, the communities are great. Um, and then also, you know, lots of people uh, chat on Reddit on like our chess. So you can definitely, you know, chat with all these people. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a blast. Um, and even if you're not very good, I'm not very good, but I have a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, but it's still fun to engage and, and, and learn and have a good time. That's that's probably the same category I fall into. I don't know how good I actually am, but I enjoy it. Thank you. My pick today is National Novel Writing Month. For those who aren't aware, November is a time that is picked by the by an organization which is also called National Novel Writing Month to to write a novel, and the the goal is to write fifty thousand words in thirty days. And they have they the organization is a five hundred one c three. They sponsor education and creativity. They do online, and they, I think they used to do some in person camps across the country. I think primarily the U.S., but it is a, a worldwide organization. So it's it's really cool. So uh, at the start of this month, I started working on a new novel as something to try and uh, distract myself from everything going on in the world. At the time we're recording, it is November 4th, so I'm not that far. But it's it's a really cool project, and they they try to bring everybody together in a, in a nice big community to all work together and on Twitter, they've got a bunch of different writing sprints and prompts that you can use if you get stuck. So it's, it's just a really cool organization. I think uh, if you enjoy writing, you should check it out. It's nanorimo.org. Awesome. Oscar, where can people find you online if they want to continue this conversation? Yeah, definitely uh, reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, my DMs are open. My handle is at Oscar underscore spin. Definitely reach out to me there. You can find me on GitHub uh, slash Spencer. And yeah, that's about it. I, there's you know more communities and discords that you'll definitely find if you look me up, and we can definitely chat a lot more. 
Excellent. Thank you so much. Hope you all enjoyed this episode. If you would like to reach out to us, you can find us at viewsonview.com or on Twitter at viewsonview. Also at devchat.tv. You can find me personally on Twitter at Yagabush. You can find Steve at Wonder95. And you can find Raymond at Raymond Camden. Hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll see you again next week. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.